I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today's episode, we are going to wrap up our coverage of the Guadalcanal campaign. Make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast app you are listening to. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram or Facebook. All you got to do is go there and search Cauldron, and we'll pop right up. You'll get some cool images, maps, videos, uh, some contests, and interesting things like that. Okay. That's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. We left off in last week's episode with the actions on the Matanacau River following the first Battle of Bloody Ridge. The fight for Guadalcanal had taken on more and more importance through August and September. By the end of September, the Japanese had decided to invest heavily in retaking the island and pushing the Allied forces out. The Allies had dug in and decided they would put up an all-out defense of Henderson Field because without the airfield, the island was lost anyways. In the final weeks of September, the Japanese committed themselves further by shipping in more men and equipment. Beyond that, the Imperial Navy also planned on redoubling the air attacks on Henderson Field. To add more punch to their attacks, the Navy also organized sending in cruisers and battleships to bombard the airstrip from the sea. While the Japanese made their moves, the Americans weren't idle. It was understood both from the long-cracked Japanese naval codes and simple observation that the Japanese were building up a large force on Guadalcanal. To prepare the Marines better, it was decided that U.S. Army units from the division in New Caledonia, the Americal Division, would be sent to reinforce. To ship the 2,800 fresh men safely to Guadalcanal, the U.S. Navy sent Task Force 64 to guard the transports. Task Force 64 had four cruisers and five destroyers under Rear Admiral Norman Scott. Its orders were to run interference against any enemy ships and fight and destroy them as needed. Early in October, a planned Tokyo Express run was going to bring over 700 Japanese soldiers with artillery and ammo to the island. At the same time, three Japanese heavy cruisers and two destroyers under Rear Admiral Aritomo Goto were to move in and bombard Henderson Field. The fact that the Tokyo Express runs had to this point gone unmolested led to the Japanese Navy being unafraid of operating at night. This time, things were different. Task Force 64 picked up Goto's ship somewhere around Savo Island. Scott's ships were in the best possible spot, 
they were able to cross Goto's tea without him even knowing where they were coming from. The U.S. ships moved in for the kill. Goto's force was slapped around, and he lost a cruiser, a destroyer, and one of his cruisers was beaten up really badly. Goto, the admiral of the Japanese ships, was even killed in the fight. The Japanese warships turned tail and ran for it, but Task Force 64 had taken some shots. Scott lost a destroyer and had two other ships heavily damaged. He also never realized that the Tokyo run was unloading. The Japanese soldiers were able to offload their uh, transports and their supplies without issue. As October passed, the Japanese buildup continued, and on the 13th, a risky operation was undertaken. Eight destroyers headed for Guadalcanal, escorting a convoy of six cargo ships, holding almost 5,000 men, artillery, and a company of tanks. The decision to forego the standard practice of using fast warships to carry a smaller amount of men, but more safely, shows how intent and desperate the Japanese leadership was becoming on their next attack on the Lunga perimeter being successful. To further protect the convoy from Cactus Air Force attack, two Japanese battleships, the Congo and Haruna, were sent to bombard Henderson Field. On October 14th at 1.30 a.m., the massive guns of the two battleships opened up from almost 10 miles offshore. For just about an hour and a half, the bombing continued. In the words of Sid Phillips, quote, on and on and on, we thought it would never end, end quote. Now, there is an excellent interview on YouTube with Mr. Phillips, and he talks about the effect of the bombardment and just his overall experience on Guadalcanal. He goes into how these, these massive shells coming from the, you know, the huge guns of these Japanese battleships, they're, they're the size of a small car. They land and they explode, and even if they're nowhere near you, the shell, the concussion, would, uh, would suck the air right out of your lungs. It would shake your whole body, your brain. Everything felt like it was on kind of just jittering around. Uh, he also goes on to explain how the... Um, the Catholics were hollering Hail Marys, and the religious were praying all over the place. It's, it's a fantastic clip, and I'll put the link in the, the show notes. The best part of it, though, is that this, this old man, this little old man, is, is laughing about what sounds to me like a pretty terrifying night. Uh, it's just, he's an incredible and, and wonderfully nonchalant character, and the whole thing is pretty wild. So I definitely suggest you check that out. By using highly effective fragmentation shells, which uh, fragmentation shells are designed to burst into thousands of flying bits of death and take out as much machinery and equipment and men as possible, the Japanese shelling did its job. The runways at Henderson Field took a pounding. Over half of the Cactus aircraft was knocked out, and dozens of men were killed, including some of the Cactus pilots. To top things off, the majority of the island's aviation fuel was destroyed in the bombardment. Before a counterattack on the battleships could strike, they were whisked off back to the main Japanese naval base at Truk. The amazing Seabees quickly fixed the damage to the airfield, and plans to replace the fuel in aircraft were immediately put into place. Attempts on stopping the Japanese convoy yielded little, but some damage was done to the transports. 
Part of the Japanese convoy was an elite unit of saboteurs. These men had been trained in speaking English and planned on getting in among the Marines and creating havoc, issuing counter-orders, sabotaging messages, and intercepting communications, these men became highly effective. To combat the new enemy tactic, Navajo code talkers were brought in. Using their native, unwritten tongue to create the Navajo battle code, these men quickly became irreplaceable for General Vandergrift. Able to decipher and send information accurately and with speed, the Navajo codes became the best and most reliable way for Vandergrift to command. I cover these amazing soldiers in some depth in the Iwo Jima episode, so if you want to learn more about the Navajo Code Talkers, check that out. It's around this time in mid-October that the defining moment for the Allied effort comes about. Vice Admiral William Bull Halsey recovered from his debilitating skin ailment and reported to Admiral Nimitz for duty. Halsey was sent to Numia to take his carrier command and when he arrived, he received a telegram marked secret. This time, instead of Gormley handing it to Vandergrift to kind of set the entire Guadalcanal battle in motion, this particular telegram was about Gormley himself. In the telegram, Nimitz ordered Halsey to relieve Gormley of his command and take over the South Pacific force in the South Pacific area. In his fiery, brash way, Halsey said on opening the order, quote, Jesus Christ and General Jackson, this is the hottest potato they ever handed me, end quote. As Gormley had no first-hand knowledge of the Guadalcanal situation, having never traveled to it, Halsey's first order was to have Vandergriff come to him and make a report. After diplomatically saying that he needed more men and planes and general aid than he had been receiving, Halsey asked Vandergriff if he could hold out. Vandergrift said he could, and Halsey promised to give him everything he had. This became a little easier, as on October 24th, President Roosevelt himself stepped in. Having seen the naval summary that stated the situation on Guadalcanal as critical, the President wrote the Joint Chiefs of Staff, ordering them to give every available and possible weapon and man to the Guadalcanal campaign. The men on the island were going to need it. With all of the men that he had been receiving, General Hyakutake now had 20,000-plus Japanese soldiers on Guadalcanal. Finally, the two sides were becoming equally matched. Figuring that a coastal attack would be too hard and favoring the indirect approach, the Japanese general planned to overwhelm the Lunga defenses. Striking the southern portion of the defensive perimeter, Huyakutaki's men would then roll up the American line and gain the airfield. Sending 7,000 men under Lieutenant Ger- General Mariuma, Hyakutaki planned to attack through the jungle on October 22nd. To pull focus from the main attack, Hyakutaki had Major General Tadashi Sur- Sumayashi with 3,000 men hit the western coastal part of the Lunga line. Aiding the whole effort, Admiral Yamamoto's ships would be blasting the hell out of Henderson Field. With the Cactus Air Force grounded, Japanese planes would rule the sky. 
If an attack to break the Marines was ever going to work, now was the time, and this was the plan. So sure of the eventual success of the attack were the Japanese, they even included a plan for the surrender ceremony that would take place after the battle. Setting out on October 12th, Mariuma and his men were forced to cover some of the worst terrain imaginable. Cutting a trail through the dense jungle, across rivers and ravines, and over ridgelines, Marayuma's force struggled to reach their launch point. It wasn't until the 23rd that the main attack force was in position, so Hyakutake ordered his secondary attack under Somiyoshi to hold. Unfortunately for the Japanese, the order didn't make it in time, and on the 23rd, the western coastal attack went forward. Nine tanks and two battalions struck across the mouth of the Matanakau River, right into the American defenses. The results were pretty predictable. All of the tanks and a high proportion of the men were cut down. The Allies thought that this was the main attack and had planned for it by sending three fresh battalions to the area. All in all, the fighting was heavy but one-sided. Had the Allied command known that the real attack was yet to come, they would have probably sent the rifle battalions elsewhere. Chesty Puller was a legend of the Marine Corps. A stout, tough Virginian, Puller was an enlisted private in the First World War. In Nicaragua, Puller won two Navy crosses and the nickname El Tigre. Now, a lieutenant colonel, Puller's 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, was put in charge of defending 2,500 yards on and around Bloody Ridge. With just shy of 700 fighting men, Puller had more ground to cover and fewer men to do it with than Edson had. The Japanese first struck in a narrow assault east of Bloody Ridge. A driving rain stalled the attack at first, but around 10 p.m., the Japanese infantry jumped from their positions and moved forward. Puller had set up deep defensive positions and well-laid fields of fire, but things were stretched thin. A native from Raritan, New Jersey, Sergeant John Bezalone and his machine gun section had put out so much fire that during a lull in the fight, he had to send men to flatten the mound of Japanese corpses that had piled up in front of his guns. In the battalion center with sandbag emplacements and double apron barbed wire, Bazalone's spot was strong but hotly contested. Over and over that night, his action stopped a Japanese breakthrough. Bazalone had to run for more ammo, had to operate guns, and had to direct fire. His crazy strength and ability to complete all these activities kept his weapons firing all night and eventually won Bazalone the Medal of Honor. Puller was desperate to hold on. He called in the 11th Marine Artillery Regiment led by Brigadier General Pedro A. Delville. Delville was in a bad way with ammo, so he didn't have much to give. But recognizing Puller was not the type of man to ask unless he needed it, Delville gave Puller his artillery fire. It was highly effective on the exposed, slow-moving Japanese infantry and allowed the Marines to retake positions that they had briefly given up. Time and again, the Japanese swarmed the Marine lines. Time and again, to no avail. At 3 a.m., Puller got the only reserve unit left, and this came in the form of the untested 3rd Battalion, 164th Infantry. They fought well, and the line held. 
Each time, the Japanese ran into the withering fire, fell back, reformed, attacked again. They were losing more and more force. The mounting losses sapped the weight and power of each Japanese blow. The airfield was safely in American hands at sunup. The failure of the Japanese attacks on the island went unknown to Yamamoto and the Japanese high command. A message had been sent that the attacks had broken the defenders and that the airfield was in Japanese hands. For hours the following day, Japanese planes flew to Henderson Field expecting to be welcomed with open arms, but were unable to land. The Japanese pilots circled aimlessly trying to figure out what was going on, and then they tried to attack whatever U.S. planes that they could find. Once they realized that they were never going to be landing, they eventually limped back to their base in Rabul. On the 25th, Yamamoto ordered all fleet forces in and around the island to assist in the attack, and again the Japanese infantry expended itself against dug-in machine guns. Nothing came of the attacks on the 25th, and finally the Japanese moved forward, not to attack, but to drag the wounded away. Early on the 26th, Yamamoto was informed that all attacks had failed. The army commander on the island reported to him, quote, In spite of wholehearted cooperation of your fleet, our attempt to capture enemy positions at Guadalcanal airfield has failed, for which I am ashamed of myself. Under the present situation, we think we are forced to make a new offensive with more strength and a much larger scale, end quote. The failure of the ground attacks and the loss of air control during the daytime hours led to severe shortages for the Japanese men on Guadalcanal. At considerable risk, Yamamoto tried to send reinforcements and supplies, but the Cactus Air Force was becoming more and more dominant in the air. The situation was dire and led to the Japanese calling Guadalcanal Starvation Island. This poem is beautiful and haunting, and I really think it conjures for you some of the horrors of the situation that the Japanese infantry found themselves in. Quote, No matter how far we walk, we don't know where we're going. Trudging along under dark jungle growth, when will this march end? Hide during the day, move at night, deep in the lush Guadalcanal jungle, our rice is gone eating roots and grass, along the ridges and cliffs, leaves hide the trail, we lose our way. Stumble and get up, fall and get up. Covered with the mud from our falls, blood oozes from our wounds. No cloth to bind our cuts, flies swarm to the scabs, no strength to brush them away, fall down and cannot move. How many times I've thought of suicide. And that's written by a Yoshida Kasichi. And it's called, quote, When Will This March End? End quote. It's seen in Saburo Ayaniga's The Pacific War. It's really a, uh, an incredible little poem that gives you a, a real feeling for the experience of the Japanese soldier. It's, it, it's genuinely harrowing. 
Oddly enough, the more that the situation on the island spiraled downward for the average Japanese soldier, the more it seemed that the high command was intent on winning the battle. Yamamoto himself said the outcome of the war might depend on the current campaign. Added to this was the imperial pressure coming from Tokyo. The emperor himself said, quote, As Guadalcanal is the place of bitter struggle and is also an important base for the navy, I wish you would make efforts to recapture it swiftly without being satisfied with the success at the time. End quote. This was a massive weight on Yamamoto. His god-king was unhappy with his current lack of success and apparently with his effort. It's also around this time that Yamamoto had a quick glimpse of the future. An American pilot was captured and questioned, and in the process, this captive rattled off a list of names of carriers. Langley, Lexington, Saratoga, Ranger, Yorktown, Enterprise, Wasp, Hornet, Essex, Bonhomme, Richard... Yamamoto had never heard of most of these, but he knew what it meant. It was Yamamoto that famously said he could fight the United States, but he didn't want to. He knew that if he didn't win the war within six months, that it was lost. Having toured the United States, he'd seen the oil fields of Texas and the assembly lines of Detroit, and Yamamoto knew that once the hydra of the American economy and war machine got going, there was no way to win. A Japanese vice admiral summed it up well by saying, quote, The enemy builds and christens second and third generation carriers as quickly as we destroy them. End quote. By November, the situation on Guadalcanal had stabilized. The public stateside was unhappy with the lack of progress, but they didn't realize what was happening on the island. Guadalcanal was in the fork in the road, and as long as the Japanese believed it to be vital, the fight would continue. As always, the whole campaign boiled down to Henderson Field. Between September 1st and November 18th, 140 Japanese air attacks hit the airfield at least once. Even though the Henderson Airfield area got pounded by so many Japanese air attacks over such a short period of time, the amazing CBs had turned damage control into an exact science. Commander Blunden claimed with 100 men he could re repair the damage of a 500-pound bomb in 40 minutes. In one 24-hour period in October, Blunden said 53 bombs and shells hit the airstrip. In one hour alone, 13 craters were filled with cactus airplanes circling above, waiting to land. The Seabees were so low on equipment that for lack of shovels, men had reverted to using their helmets to dig at times. Blunden said, quote, Our worst moments were when the Japanese bomb or shell failed to explode when it hit. It still tore up our mat and it had to come out. When you see men choke down their fear and dive in after an unexploded bomb so that our planes can land safely, a lump comes in your throat, and you know why America wins wars. End quote. To handle the growing load of planes, Blunden had a secondary airstrip built running parallel to the original. It was rough but usable. Henderson Field had reached its final phase, and Guadalcanal was now acting as the unsinkable carrier feared initially by the Allies in the early summer of 1942. 
Halsey visited his Marine commander in early November. He toured the field positions and hospitals and met with Vandergrift and his men. And the idea was, at this point, for Halsey to get a feel for the campaign, how it was going, and to make his next moves. There was also an opportunity for Halsey to meet with the press, and they finally got to ask Halsey what his strategy was for winning the battle. Halsey's response filled his men with fire, and that fire spread to the people back home. Halsey said his approach was simple. He planned to, quote, to kill Japs, kill Japs, and keep on killing Japs, end quote. Now, obviously, today, this is a clearly racist comment, but at the time, nobody cared. In fact, this was the prevailing sentiment among Americans, regardless of the significant number of Japanese Americans that were contributing to everyday life. Hate was, as it usually is, weaponized for war. It burned exceptionally bright in the people that had been the victim of a surprise attack. Of course, this hatred and racism goes both ways, and the Japanese were just as racist and hateful and vengeful as the Americans were. Halsey's comments, though, show the new, uh, the, the, the bitterness and determination that the U.S. Navy planned on fighting the war with. The events of November 10th to the 14th were seen as crucial to the campaign by both Halsey and Yamamoto. Halsey knew that the Japanese Navy was unloading men almost nightly, and he decided to do what he could to bring more men to balance the numbers. He ordered up a large number of fresh reserves from nearby Numia and Espiritu Santo to be ferried in by Rear Admiral Turner's transports. He would be protected by Rear Admiral Daniel Callahan and Rear Admiral Norman Scott. Turner had four transports under Callahan's, two cruisers and three destroyers. Scott had three transports under his guard. By the 12th, the transports and ships had all reached Guadalcanal safely. As Turner unloaded his seven transports, word came that a Japanese fleet was coming down the slot. Turner had to get away ASAP. A wing of 25 Japanese torpedo bombers paused the unloading, but only damaged the cruiser San Francisco and the destroyer Buchanan. The transports were unhit and continued to unload once Cactus airplanes destroyed most of the enemy torpedo bombers. By the end of the day, Turner cut short the unloading so he could get his transports away safely. This left Callahan to protect the island. Callahan was set on not allowing the Japanese to bombard the Marines inland. He took Scott and his ships under his command, giving Callahan two heavy cruisers, three light cruisers, and eight destroyers. They were facing what they believed to be two Japanese battleships, two to four heavy cruisers, and ten to twelve destroyers. The numbers and weight of shot were decidedly in the Japanese Navy's favor. Around 1.30 a.m., the U.S. ships located the Japanese between Savo Island and Cape Esperance. Vice Admiral Nabutake Kondo was in overall command of the Japanese forces. He intended on bombing Henderson Field with his battleships, one light cruiser, and 14 destroyers. Callahan was not having it, and took his small fleet into action. A naval free-for-all followed, with ships grasping in the dark. Unable to tell friend from foe, both sides fired blindly in the inky darkness. 
Both the U.S. admirals were killed in the fight, and the American ships took a pounding. The morning sun revealed dying ships and men everywhere. Limping around the waters between Savo and Guadalcanal, the ships still were lashing out at each other. One of the Japanese battleships had been wounded in the night fight, and as the day progressed, planes from Henderson Field continued to peck at her. Finally, that next night, the Japanese crew scuttled the ship. Both sides suffered in the battle, but no one suffered like Alita Sullivan. The American cruiser, the Juno, had been hit in the night fight and then again around 11 a.m. The sub submarine torpedo tore the ship's hull apart. In a great pillar of fire and smoke, the Juno sank to the bottom of Iron Bottom Sound with all but ten of her crew. That included all five of Alita Sullivan's sons. A shocked and appalled U.S. public cried out in disbelief that the Navy would allow brothers to serve on the same ship. There had been a policy in place, but until Guadalcanal, it was rarely enforced. After the Sullivan tragedy, that changed. The fighting Sullivan brothers became a propaganda coup, and there was even a hit Hollywood movie made about the incident. The naval battle of Guadalcanal was an American drubbing. Twelve of thirteen U.S. ships involved had been sunk or damaged. Both of the admirals were dead. Admiral Scott went on to win the Medal of Honor. The damaged vessels were hurt badly and would be out of action for some time. The Japanese had only lost one battleship and two destroyers, with four destroyers damaged. But the sacrifice of Callahan and Scott was worth it. The desperately needed reinforcements Halsey had promised Vandergrift had been delivered. The Japanese ships had also been able to get uh, nowhere near their target of Henderson Field. The result was essentially a tactical U.S. defeat, but a strategic win. ...had a secondary plan to follow the bombing of Henderson Field by his battleships. The night after the first attack, he planned to have Vice Admiral Makawa and his four heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and six destroyers bombard the airfield. Even though the initial attack failed, Kondo stuck to the plan and had Makawa's ships continue. With Callahan and Scott's ships at the bottom of the sound or in full flight, there was nothing to stop Makawa. For over 30 minutes, his ships drenched the airfield in high-explosive shells. Back in D.C., it was still the morning of Friday the 13th, and the news that not only the day's fighting had ended badly for the U.S., but now there was a strong force of Japanese surface ships that was pounding the airfield was shocking. Then there was more bad news, as it was learned that the Japanese were sending transports moving down the slot to reinforce Guadalcanal. Even at this point, everyone in the highest level of government, including the president, thought that the island might be lost. Secretary Forrestal said, quote, The tension that I felt at that time was matched only by the tension that pervaded Washington the night before the landings in Normandy. End quote. The moment of decision was at hand. Whichever side came out on top in the next 48 hours would likely win the campaign.
On November 14th, U.S. airmen witnessed more Japanese naval vessels and transports heading down the slot while Makawa's force slipped off to the northwest. As Makawa's victorious ships moved off from their position, the Cactus Air Force took its revenge. Joined by fighters from the Enterprise, the U.S. pilots sank the cruiser Kinagusa and damaged the Isuzu, Chokai, Maya, and a destroyer. Unintentionally, the affair worked in Japan's favor as a distraction. While the fight with Makawa happened, Rear Admiral Tanaka slipped from his hiding place with 11 transports full of men and equipment. Guarded by 11 destroyers, he made the last leg of the trip to Guadalcanal in a mad dash. And they almost made it. Realizing what was happening, the Cactus Air Force and some carrier-based planes moved in on the Japanese transport fleet. By the end of the 14th, seven of the transports were sunk with all hands and all equipment. Even the four that made it to the island were eventually themselves sunk. These four had unloaded their men, but not the supplies, so there were just more mouths that had to be fed that were brought to Starvation Island. Now realizing resupply via surface ships was impossible, the Japanese high command ordered submarines to bring in food and gear. Unsuited for the job, the submarines were an ineffectual waste of resources, and while running the little food that they could take, they posed no threat to American ships. This poorly thought-out backup plan is a clear indication that the Japanese no longer thought that the island campaign was winnable. Yamamoto's dream to win the island back had failed, and to sink more ships, planes, and men into the venture would be wasteful. The enemy was still capable of striking out, but with less and less vigor. November 20th, enemy movements were tracked around the Ilu River. On the 21st at 3 a.m., Japanese infantry sent waves against the American forces at the mouth of the Ilu River. By daybreak, the Japanese attackers had been almost annihilated. The 20th also saw the delivery of more marine aircraft to Henderson Field. A squadron of Wildcat fighters and a squadron of Douglas dive bombers were added to the Cactus Air Force. The little air force over Guadalcanal itself had seen a shift in its role. From mounting feeble but, but, but determined defensive sorties, now the Cactus pilots were attacking, hunting down the enemy and striking back. Even the plight of the Marines on the island was changing. Now the 2nd Marine Division and U.S. Army units had arrived. With another division coming in early December, the 1st Marine Division was finally given the ability to take themselves out of the line and take a blow. The Japanese situation was entirely out of control. With little to no food or supplies, the men were desperate. Not even 50% were capable of fighting. Beriberi and malaria and dengue fever ran through the ranks, infecting over 60%. Yamamoto, never foolish, requested permission to evacuate the island. He went even further, suggesting that operations in the South Pacific switch over to the defensive across the board and immediately. He could see what was coming and understood the sooner the Japanese defenses had been perfected, the better. Finally, on January 3rd, the order came from Tokyo to evacuate the island. The secondary part of the order was to take Port Moresby and then retake Guadalcanal. So clearly, some people in high command were still somewhat half-baked, but 
the evacuation was sensible enough. On February 1st, Yamamoto pulled together a large number of destroyers and began the slow, dangerous process of removing his men off of Starvation Island. From December through February, U.S. Army units had been breaking themselves in while slowly breaking the Japanese up. An almost continuous campaign of attack, breakthrough, and follow-up pushed the Japanese into smaller and smaller positions. Over the life of the campaign, Japan had poured 50,000 men into the island. 25,000 died between battles, malaria, dengue, starvation, and the jungle itself. There were also an innumerable amount of men that had died in and in the transports or in the water on the way to Guadalcanal. Yamamoto was only able to bring 13,000 men off the island. Guadalcanal, in Yamamoto's eyes, were where the war changed forever. From Guadalcanal on, the war shifted. Japan was trying to stay on its feet, but was reeling from dozens of body blows. On the other side, Allied forces were just working up a sweat. Ultimately, it was an exercise to find their limits. The reason that the Battle of Guadalcanal was an Allied victory is because in, May, in large part because the U.S. Navy shifted its style. Ships were expensive and took time to build and man, so losing any represented a tremendous amount of experience and treasure lost. Most navies at the outset of the war, except maybe Japan, displayed a ten tentativeness with ships that often exposed them to unnecessary danger. Halsey's injection of the Nelsonian go-get-em kind of mentality brought new vigor to the U.S. naval fighting style. His fearlessness and lack of concern, not so much for his men, but for his ships, started a game of chicken the Japanese could not win. Neither side had ships to spare, but each one Japan lost was essentially gone forever. On the opposite side, the American arsenal of freedom was only starting to ramp up, and soon there would be ten ships coming for every one sunk. Beyond ships, the loss of skilled pilots at the outset of the war killed Japan. They had neither the time, fuel, or planes to train new pilots well and quickly. Each naval airman lost by Japan was genuinely irreplaceable. Maybe the most valuable lessons, though, were learned by the Marines. At Guadalcanal, Marines learned what weapons worked best, how to fight nature and disease in the Pacific, and how to send coded messages in the heat of battle. The process of amphibious landing was continuously being tweaked. Battlefield construction and maintenance were honed. Guadalcanal acted as the great marine incubator. In time, hundreds of landings on hundreds of islands all over the Pacific benefited from the hard-won lessons of Starvation Island. In the words of General Marshall, quote, the highly prized airfield on Guadalcanal was held by Marines against a long series of air, sea, and ground assaults by the enemy. The resolute defense of these Marines under Major General Alexander A. Vandergrift and the desperate gallantry of our naval task forces marked the turning point in the Pacific." End quote. All right, there you have it, the second and final part of our story on the Battle of Guadalcanal. 
I hope you liked it. I hope it was uh, enjoyable and kind of killed a, a drive for you or took up a flight or whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to try and eat up some of that boring time for you. I want you guys to check out one story when you get a chance. I couldn't really fit it in because I didn't learn about it until later, but uh, there's a story of a gentleman named Vuza. It's an incredible, incredible story. He's captured by the Japanese. He's beaten and stabbed and slashed and then left for dead, and somehow he crawls his way back to the American lines, informs the Americans of an impending Japanese attack, um, it's a great story, unbelievable, unbelievable story. Uh, definitely check that out. The name is, uh, again, Vuza, V-O-U-Z-A. Um, all right, check out the show notes for more information for that video uh, I told you about. And uh, go and check out Facebook, Instagram to see any images. If you get a chance, pick up a copy of that book, The Pacific War by Bill Hopkins. It's a great read and was the major source I used while writing this episode. Um, I will be back next week with another episode, and this time we are, uh, we got a doozy for you. It's the final, one of the final battles of the Crusades, a Christian disaster, a Muslim triumph, and the Battle of Nicopolis. <laughs> <laughs>